Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Yes, a good evening, a good morning and a good afternoon to you, however you may be listening and wherever you may be listening. This is the Man on the Post podcast, Uh, once again recording on a Monday, even though we tried to do this on a Sunday, but sometimes scheduling, it just works out better. There's a noise coming from our first guest, so it may as well be better better time than now to introduce him, and that's James Rowe joining us all the way from the Netherlands. James, a good evening. Good evening, fe- good evening, fellas. How are you both? We're good, we're good. And joining me on my right-hand side, once again coming off the substitute bench, like Ole Gunnar Solskjaer in his prime, is Marcus Shearer, a resident Newcastle fan. I prefer the Schoeler Amiobi analogy. Did Schoeler... Uh, he's the most subbed Premier League player, I believe. Yes, but was he known for that? Yes. And, and did he get the name Super Sub? Yeah. No, he didn't. Ole Gunnar Solskjaer <laughs> was, so shut up. No, no, you love Schoeler, that's fine, but just keep it amongst yourself. Really good to be here. Right. <laughs> anyway, we're not here to talk about Shola Amiobi as much as Marcus ah, would love to. Boo! <laughs> Turn this way. Uh, we're here to discuss everything that's gone on with the weeks of football. Um, not really much to talk about over the weekend in, resu- in regards to results. You know, the FA Cup didn't really pull up any shocks. The fairly routine. Fairly routine. Premier League, Crystal Palace did a thing. So there's only really one place to start, and that's with the greatest club competition in the world. As it is marketed, the Champions League, where the draw was made, and it's thrown up an all-Premier League tie in Manchester City versus Liverpool. We have Barcelona versus Roma. They've sneaked through it again. Uh, Real Madrid have got Juventus. And there's one other. Bayern Munich have got... There's one other team left. Someone tell me. Sevilla. Sevilla, Sevilla, thank you. Who knocked down Man United? Yeah, of course. Well done. Thank you, James. I'm resident European expert. He's good. We know we have him for a reason. Um, I suppose there's really only one place to start, and that's the Battle of the M62, or the East Lanks Road, depending on which uh, atlas you use. Marcus is looking at me with bewilderment, but Manchester <laughs> City versus Liverpool. Yeah. And there's only really one thing. This really is Manchester City's last hurdle in regards to the winning a treble, winning the treble. James, do you think Liverpool can do it over two legs? That's a straight off the straight off the bat. It's, poss- it's possible. I-, I wouldn't rule it out, but I think home advantage for Manchester City in the le- second leg is going to be decisive. Yeah. So I think, do- it, I think, it, I think if the second leg was at Anfield, I'd, I'd be putting my money on Liverpool to reach the semi-final. But I think, um, I think City being at home in the second leg will uh, will put pay to that. Um, I think it's a very interesting draw. Um, I think that Juventus will have um, will have uh, a lot of motivation. Um, to beat Real Madrid, considering what happened in the final last uh, last May, and I think that Juventus will beat um, Real Madrid over two legs. But um, yeah, it should be uh, should be a very interesting quarter final. Good, but you say that Man uh, Man City, you know, the home advantage will be will work in their favour. So it's basically going to come down to whether or not Liverpool can get the job done at Anfield before they go back to the City of Manchester Stadium. And to do that, they really need at least a two-goal cushion. And do you think that's possible? I do think it's possible. If you look at the result they had against Manchester City at home in the league not so long ago, they will take that as a blueprint. But Champions League nights at Anfield and uh, the reputation that it has, um, I think they will need to establish a healthy lead. But um, I just think it will be be quite tight. I I can't see it being... uh, I think maybe a 2-1 win for Liverpool in the first leg, perhaps, mm. but uh, they'll definitely need a cushion going into the second leg in Manchester. Marcus, your thoughts? For what it's worth, um, you go back to the 
uh, reverse fixture, I think it's October or so, where they were beaten, was it 5-0 in the end? After oh, the Bartomani got sent off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. sent off, which is, I think, the main difference between then and now, um, Mane being sent off the side, is trying to shore up the defence, which, to an extent, they've started to, with Virgil van Dijk in the side. So it's about... It's actually about a conversation we had about not long ago about front three versus front three, about which you would prefer to have. It was last. It was last week, in fact. Last week, yeah, yeah. Uh, and that's going to be like the decisive factor from it. Uh, for me personally, going back again to the January fixture where it finished three two to Liverpool, four three, four three even. Yeah, I thought they were very very lucky to get away with that win. Yeah. The way that it panned out at the end, I really thought Man City were going to steal at least a draw if not push for win by the end of it and I think Man City would have learnt from that and bear in mind that Edison got caught out he did yeah yeah. you, um, you play with you, you I was going to say you don't allow it because it, it was their only loss of the season but it happens you're going to yep. if you play like that as a goalkeeper you're going to get caught out Manuel Neuer's had it done to him so the, the best, it's happened to the best hasn't it yeah. how many times did it happen to Peter Schmeichel yeah countless times you know and the same will happen with Edson and that's yeah. okay so Pep Guardiola will make allowances for that uh, this time around I don't see Liverpool getting that much rubber to green uh, either side I think Manchester City this is like this is their main challenge for the rest of the season is getting that Champions League because we all know the Premier League is all but wrapped up at this point yeah. you know barring a miracle um, so this is what they're going to be putting Basically, all their eggs into this basket to get past Liverpool. Uh, so long as they, if if they have a fit Vincent company over two legs, uh, alongside Otamendi and no house from the goalkeeper, I can see this. I can see this being fairly one-sided, to be honest. Yeah, because what most people said last year when they got knocked out by PSG, or was it two years ago? No, no, they got knocked out by Monaco. Monaco, yeah. That's it. Uh, in Pep's first year, I think. It was. Pep, yeah, yeah. I was, and that was it. And it was the year before. It was Pellegrini's last year. They got to the semi-final. Is now they've got the experience of doing it. You know, guys like Sergio Aguero now has gone deep into that competition. This isn't new for them. Mm. It'll be new for the likes of John Stones to an extent. So now that experience of you know, and I say no how plus Pep, not Pep. Yeah. Everyone likes Pep. I don't, but everyone yeah. else does. Um, it's that experience. And looking, looking sort of around the rest of the tide, uh, the standout is Real Madrid versus Juventus. The repeat final. The repeat yeah. final. And again, this is going to come down to the Gigi Buffon loving. Because it happened last year. Everyone's, everyone's saying, how can you not want Gianluigi Buffon to win a Champions League? He's gonna have to do it again. Unfortunately, I mean, he was caught. We saw his vulnerabilities against Spurs as well, though. It's just like it's it's kind of tragic to see. He's not the keeper that he was, mm. um, and I think that will be Juventus' undoing again. Unfortunately, short of them having that stern, solid uh, defense that tactically outdid Spurs. Yeah, but Spurs are <laughs> Spurs are not the same as Real Madrid. Well, you say that, but they turned them over. It's a it's a really weird uh, come. Mm complicated one um, yeah. but no on their night Real Madrid you know against Juventus uh, unfortunately again it seems like we're coming back into the same sort of standard set of teams making the same making up the numbers for the final four yeah it's it's exactly the same as the the FA Cup last year you yeah. know you think all the upsets you had Lincoln beating Burnley and Sutton United who was the semi-final uh, let me, hang on let me name them Chelsea Spurs Arsenal Manchester City exactly there you go so no matter how how many great severe beat Man United great upset we know how it's going to end yeah, up so you're looking Bayern Barca one of Real Madrid Juventus and probably Manchester and, and Man City or Liverpool it's, yeah. it's just how it, it is it's a standard of yeah. James going round that is you know Bayern Munich uh, no not Bayern Munich uh, Real Madrid Juventus is the standout obviously but are there any is there any games or any sort of matchups that you're looking forward to I'm looking forward to see how Bayern deal with Sevilla in Spain. Uh, yeah. I think that will be very interesting. Sevilla, when they played at home to Liverpool, uh, they were 3-0 down and managed to come back for three, to 3-3. Three, three. Held uh, Manchester United at home in, in Seville. And um, I just think Bayern as well. You know, Jupankas for me doesn't get half as much credit as the man actually deserves. I mean, um, that 2013 Bayern Munich side that won the Champions League, I was, I went to the home match in London, Arsenal against Bayern Munich in the last 16 when they won 3-1. And I can, <clears throat> hands down, say that's the greatest European side I've seen live in action. 
not just in terms of individuals, but how they worked together as a team. They were, back in 2013, fully deserved winners. And you can see that you're paying because it's, it's gone back to basics and, and the core of what Bayern Munich is all about and the players embracing that and showing their worth. And I think um, I think Bayern Munich have a tremendous chance to win the Champions League again this season. So to say that again, was that when, that your Pinker side? Was that did you say that was the best side you'd ever seen, or was that? Yes, that's, yeah. I was at the home match uh, yeah. between Arsenal and Bayern Munich in 2013 when Bayern Munich won in London three one. Right. Okay. And, and then it, fe- it featured the likes of Tony Kroos, Philip Lahm, Bastian Schweinsteiger, Thomas Müller, Manuel, Manuel Neuer, but the how they worked in unison. I mean, obviously, being an Arsenal fan, it was difficult to take such a defeat. But if you remained objective for a minute and you looked at the football being played by the opponent on that pitch, it was uh, it was a joy to behold, really. Oh, stuff objectivity. The best. It's Fulham in 2010. Clearly, the best. John Panther, the right back, managed to beat Juventus 5-4. I mean, come on, that's the great. That's the greatest. And then, oh, no, but I, what, what I mean is, Matt, is that, I mean, like, I've seen live in action play. That's what I, I, think, he's, I think he's just talking in jest, yeah. James. I was going to say, just as Marcus, what? The, 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 when Schola scored a hat-trick at the New Camp. He or... scored one at the New Camp. We lost 3-1, <laughs> but Schola still scored at the New Camp before Lionel Messi. Here go, Schola Ramiobi is better than Lionel Messi. Yeah. Um, uh, what I'd like to ask James on that point is, it's funny that he says that's the great scene that, you know, 3-1, etc, etc. Yeah. How does that team compare against the Bayern Munich team that turned over Arsenal 5-1 twice <laughs> within the space of a few weeks? I, I, I'd, you know, I'd like to get sort of a, you know, because I believe in the return leg, did Arsenal not beat them at they the Allianz them, Arena? Yeah, they beat them 1-0. Yeah, Alex Oxford Chamberlain scored, I think. So, yeah, how did the two sort they, of compare? They did, but I just look at it in the... In the um, in the way that Bayern Munich set up, in the way that they're, what they're known for and the fight that they show and, and German football qualities and everything working in unison. I mean, I think that Heinke side that Pep dismantled and played about with did, didn't go on to win a Champions League, but um, didn't go on to dominate in Europe. I think he, uh, I think he toyed with it a little bit and I'm just, I'm just a big fan of Jupp Heinke's. I think he's a tremendous manager, you know, and, uh, I don't think he gets half as much credit as what he actually should get. It's funny, you see a lot of parallels from all his sides and how they play, mainly through, I've seen a video of Thierry Henry analysing it on Monday Night Football, where he talks about how the strikers start out wide in the final third, get that build-up play, and then they have the freedom within the last 20 yards, or whatever it is, to go where they want and come inside. And you see it in the Manchester City team now, like you see though, and the likes of Sané and Sterling, they stay out wide, then they'll come inside with Aguero, De Bruyne will put in a cross right across the uh, penalty box with someone to finish on the end. And I saw it with Bayern Munich, saw it with Barcelona, and I'm sure we'll see it uh, more this year against Liverpool too. Well, you've seen it several times. Yeah. Even, even last Monday when we watched them against Stoke, the, the opening goal, David Silva, I think, De Bruyne box in wide. Yeah. And yeah, it's just that yeah. routine that teams don't seem but to back, go with. Yeah, but back to what James was saying about this, about the, the Bayern Munich side of 2013 being the greatest. There's someone going to say that if Manchester City go on and win the Champions League this year, that there's the argument of they're in they're in the discussion of the best team to have ever played. Do we think that's basically is the Champions League what's stopping them from being put in that discussion? Are we basing that on one season? Because yep. for me, the greatest team that plays is like a team that has been consistently built over a few years, more than two. So you know, you could make a great example. Um, well, a great argument for the Wales team to reach the semi-finals of the Euros, playing above their ability, above the standard set of the Welsh national side, yeah. but and the expectations, but exceeding them. The same for you can make arguments for the Leicester side that won the Premier League out of nowhere. Yeah, no, 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 just if you not, not talking about greatest achievement, but yeah. just the greatest. Like put this team against anyone from any era in history. This team. I think it's too early to say that. I think you, it's too early to do you call. Think, do you yeah. think, as James, is this the one thing that's stopping them? Because when we talk about the great side, it's you know it's the treble, Man- the treble Man- yeah. Manchester United, the Invincibles. It's the Invincibles. It's Jose Mourinho's first Chelsea team that stormed the league. Lisbon Lions, the Lisbon Lions, the Celtic. There's always um, Nottingham the, Forest, um, the yeah, Barcelona, geez. the Barcelona side, Brazil of 1970. Now I'm talking strictly clubs. Oh. There's the Barcelona side that won seven titles. In a year, yeah, uh, oh. two thousand nine was it? 
I think that's again during Guardiola's run. Yeah, during Guardiola's. That's a, <clears throat> James again. Sorry, uh, take it away from it. But is this the only thing that's stopping them from being put in that discussion? I agree with Marcus. I think it's too early to say at the minute. I, I do. I think. Um, I think they want the Champions League. I think they've uh, they struggled to make it out of their group for quite some quite some time when uh, when things first came to fruition, and then they reached the semi final and got stage fright. So um, I agree with Marcus. Uh, I think it's a bit too early to tell. Um, going back to all the te- teams you've just reeled off rightly, so I think one team that always gets overlooked, and I think it's criminal, is the um, AC Milan side of Origo Saki in the early in the early 90s I think that was just absolutely unreal yeah. and um, lots of people were in the case of Eddie Osaki and that Milan side that's I mean, when you see old footage of that it's just uh, absolutely tremendous yeah they, 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 yeah they were there even yeah I just that's... even the AC Milan side of the fi- that lost in the final 2005 that yeah. team my god yeah the, 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 the team they're basically the same team that won in 2007 yeah basically yeah, yeah. 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 I just it just escaped my mind, but I know they're there. Yeah, because everyone's still talking like the Liverpool team, the eighties, the Manchester, whatever. Yeah, but anyway, that's it. So that's the Champions League out of the way. Now we move over to James's favourite subject because it's his favourite team, um, Arsenal, getting a pretty cushy draw in the Europa League against CSK Moscow. Yeah, I wouldn't. I wouldn't necessarily describe it as cushy. For me, when that first uh, come out of the hat, my first thoughts were guys, but. The dynamic is different in terms of the previous rounds against Osasuna and Milan, where we had both teams at home in the second leg. I was at the Osasuna's home leg where we um, we lost two one and was two 0 down after uh, after half an hour. And uh, Osasuna came with a game plan. Uh, although it was a fantastic result, uh, fantastic results to beat AC Milan over two legs. It's a very weak Milan, and for me, Arsenal have got to win the home leg by a healthy cushion. Mm. Uh, going into the second leg in Moscow because it's a long way to travel. Home advantage will be um, will be key for Seska Moscow, and you mustn't forget how well they played to this batch of um, Olympic Lyon in their own stadium uh, in the second leg. So I don't think it's as an easier tie as what people are making it out to be. Yeah, when I say Kush, I don't mean I don't mean it's straightforward. But when you look at the teams that Arsenal could have got. They could have got Atletico Madrid. They could have got Lazio. They could have got... Yeah. That's the one team you're probably thinking, yeah, I fancy our chances against them. You probably wouldn't be saying the same against an Atletico Madrid or a Marseille or a Lazio. No, but one thing I have noticed about the supporters group of Arsenal, especially in this competition so far this year, is that because it's not the Champions League and it's not what people are accustomed to, if you like, um, they've kind of... Um, They've kind of thought, well, you know, we're only playing this this team, and like, for example, I had I heard some Arsenal fans refer to Ostersunds as a pub team, when this is an Ostersunds side that had dispatched of uh, Athletic Bilbao, at Berlin, and Galatasaray. Mm. Um, for me, as a fan of European football in general, I just think it's going to be a, a very tough uh, tough two legged tie, and we're going to have to really give our give our all to get through it. But uh, I'm quietly confident. But uh, as I say, the dynamic dynamic with the second leg being away is for some is something which is which is quite evident for me. Yeah, so it's sort of similar to what you were, what we were discussing earlier with Liverpool. You, you think Arsenal would need at least a two goal cushion, if not yes. more, in order to be somewhat. Um, otherwise, you're going into that second leg. I need that is of course if Arsenal end up playing because there's the political situation that we're not in any way educated enough to discuss yeah, but let's not go there but but I, for the lunch, I would not be want to be I would not want to be DT or Ty or Claude or Troops or Robbie now no. having to go to Boston something tells me they'll stay at home and stream it yeah just and just, just react from there I mean, um, cr- I mean credit to them going all the way around Europe yeah. and DT going to Serbia and Estonia and Arse end of nowhere, yeah. <laughs> Fair play to him, but just not this. It seems like an odd one. For, for me, the biggest challenge for Arsenal here isn't ability. They've got buckets and buckets of ability to win this competition. We know that. For me, it's the mentality of when they're out in Russia, in that stadium, in front of those fans. I don't know if half those players are going to have the mentality to cope with it. Because we, we've seen these Arsenal players fold... Uh, 
uh, down at Bournemouth. Yeah. Uh, or by the seaside down at Brighton. You know, so what's it going to be like out in Moscow for them? I think that's what uh, the real focus and the real sort of key point will be here. Like, if they, uh, for example, hypothetical, they were to win 2 0 at the Emirates, then go out there and Moscow will get the first goal, then things become uneasy and it could yeah. slow, you know, be a slippery slope from there. Yeah, it's about yeah. coping with that. Yeah. James, any thoughts? Yeah, well, for our, as, our, as an Arsenal supporter for more than 30 years, it's a, this is opportunity, this cup represents a fantastic opportunity to win again in Europe for the first time since 1994. We've played Champions League football for nigh on 20 years, which people took for granted and didn't really um, embrace European nights and, and just really took, took them for granted, whereas some teams that play in Europe would really fight and really be proud of, of entertaining such world-class teams. And I just, as a, as a supporter, if we if we were not to take this opportunity in terms of winning the entire competition, not to gain entry into the Champions League, that for me that's not important, but to win again in Europe for the first time since 1994 for the next generation of Arsenal fans is very important. I just hope that we take the opportunity with both hands. Yeah, no, that's something you mentioned, because I've noticed that on the BT Sport adverts for the, um, I think it was, the uh, Oostersons game in the round of 32 is the way the BT Sport advertised it was because um, they, they want to do this hip young cool guy that, to advertise it make it look like the Europa League is somewhat important and, and they advertised it as hey Arsenal this is your chance to get back into the big but to get back in with the big boys you know, yeah. basically seeing the Europa League as the main purpose of the Europa League for someone like Arsenal is to get into the Champions League. Well, Manchester United yeah. did it. Well, Manchester, I think Manchester that was an old one because Jose's first year period of transition, not really. I still got them back in. He still got them point. back in, yeah. but I don't think that. But I don't think his aim at the start of the season was no. But, he, but they, he made that his focus by the end. Yeah, he he, made, he yeah. threw everything into that. Yeah, and but it was a huge yeah. risk, and it paid off. Yeah, but what James is saying is the most important thing is to have silverware rather than. Another year in Champions League football that everyone yeah. else has gotten used to. I understand that. Yeah, I can yeah. see that. Yeah, it's fair enough. Um, the rest of the uh, the rest of the ties: uh, Atletico Madrid against Sporting Lisbon, which should which is one for the seems one, straightforward. One for seems, the hip, it's yeah. one for the hipsters. Um, Lazio against uh, our uh, Red Bull uh, Salzburg, Salzburg and Red Bull Leipzig against Marseille. I'm really hoping Leipzig. And Salzburg make it through and play in the semis. Just, just the the Yadars are going to go mental over it <laughs> with the whole sponsorship thing. That's, yeah. And everyone's saying it's immoral and it's wrong and it's franchising football and all that stuff. When really, it's not that bad. It's, when you consider what's going on, it's not uh, that bad. Well, yeah, I was going to say with what's going on in the world as a whole, you know, I think I can let it slide these days. <laughs> the, the Red Bull sponsor a football oh, team. No. Or sponsor two football teams. Three. Uh, <laughs> got one in New York. I think yeah. they've got one in Brazil as well. Yeah. So. But, but who cares? Yeah, whatever. It's just football. It. Right. Now we move on from club football. European football to international football. It's a bit of a it's a bit of a segue, but we'll make it work. And Gareth Southgate has named his England side for the upcoming friendlies against uh, the Netherlands and Italy, two teams who will not be in the World Cup. So you've got to wonder what the thinking was there. You know, you want to play teams of of a certain level, and you're picking teams who didn't make the World Cup. So in theory, you're playing weaker opposition than those you're going to play in the summer. It's just a bit. It's just a bit of an odd one, and. Uh, the what would you say the main talking point? Is, well, the first main talking point is they four goalkeepers. Four goalkeepers, which, unless he's going to play a half each in the two games, that's your only reckoning. That's your only thinking. Or he hasn't got the cojones to make a phone call to Joe and say, "Listen, yeah. come on, yeah. come on, Joe. You know, come be on. fair." Then now the main thing is now, Marcus. You in preparation for last week before we dropped the subject had your England eleven ready. Squad. Squad, yes. Yeah. So, Marcus, um, I'll basically throw it to you. Did Gareth Southgate get the right squad? Because this really is the first inkling of what the World Cup squad is going to be. Minus the injuries 
you know, I've no idea you know, who's injured at the moment. Harry Kane, for instance, is yep. injured. You think if he's healthy, he's going to the World Cup, so disregard his place. But at the but as it stands, that is the leaders in the clubhouse for the World Cup. Yeah, it's for most parts, it's the usual suspects, um, which to a degree you find frustrating. But the the biggest talking point I hear amongst all the pundits is the control in the central midfield. And saying that England just don't have a player that can just ping the ball from back and forth and make long passes and you know pick out players in the final third and they just can't seem to get that control. Which leads us to why is John Joe Shelby not being selected for the England squad? It's being a, overlooked. It's it, ridiculous. It's, Did no one see his assist for Kennedy against Southampton? Even for him, that was just. It, it was it was, it was insane. I don't know what it is about the North East being overlooked. Maybe it's the shit show that's going on at Sunderland at the moment <laughs> that's taking away all the focus. Everyone thinks but, the whole of the North East is run like that, so yeah. we're not having anything so just, to do yeah, with it. Let them crack on with it. It's just, oh, let's see. Sunderland and Tony Pulis and Middlesbrough. Nah, nah let's, let's get on with it. When, you know, Rafa's like, working with these coaches, uh, coaches these players uh, regularly and just getting like the strongest, uh, resilient defence out of them and then, you know, harnessing the ability of a player like that for him to not be recognised by uh, Gareth Southgate but instead he will recognise someone like Jake Livermore who's not won a competitive football match since last August and would rather spend more time stealing taxis but that apparently is applicable for making the England squad yeah James you can probably tell that me me and both both Margs have made it clear on various podcasts before that we're huge fans of John Joe Shelby what what are you are you a fan of John Joe Shelby can we indoctrinate you into the John Joe Shelby fan club Yes, I am a fan of John Joe Shelby. Good, we'll get you a jacket. Yeah. Sent over straight away. <laughs> I think he, uh, I think he does have qualities. But the one name that I cannot, for the life of me, understand why he's not yet being capped, not being brought into any squads, is Mark Albrighton. This is a man that's won the Premier League with Leicester. This is a man that's done it at the highest level in the Champions League, scoring goals and putting the frightness up, up uh, uh, Sevilla and Atletico Madrid. He's a tremendous player. You saw yesterday, even in defeat. Um, up until when he was subbed, he gives everything. You know, looking to go forward, looking to spray passes, full of energy. And I can't understand for the life of me why Mark Albrighton is not in the squad. And the same goes for me too with uh, James Ward-Prowse. You know, he can deliver a fantastic free kick, can deliver a fantastic set piece and, mm. and corners as well. And these things could be key in uh, in game situations. Yeah, right. I completely, yeah, I completely right. agree. With completely agree with Marcos. Why on earth would you leave John Joe Shelby behind who's uh, providing assists for a team battling against relegation to pick someone who hasn't won a game since last August? And, and I actually think as well that the national team manager's job for any country, it's a job for an older man. It's a job for a man with an awful lot of experience. And Southgate doesn't have that experience. And when you get to the nitty-gritty of big tournaments and, and, and big nations and big games, the small details in, in making a sub, in tactically changing things, this is what gets you progression in major tournaments. And I don't believe he has that. So although we have good players such as Vardy and Kane and, and Wiltshire, and I think Harry Maguire has had a tremendous season at Leicester, although we have very good players, I, I just think with our manager being so inexperienced, we're not going to have a tremendous World Cup in Russia. Yeah, I think I have. I think I have an idea as to why Mark Albright's not picked. And I, and I agree with you. I think he's a fantastic. Well, not fantastic, yeah. but I think he's absolutely, absolutely should have got an England cap by now. Yeah. Same with the likes of Mark Noble should absolutely have had an England cap. Steve, Stephen Taylor should have had at least one England cap. Yeah. We'll go on. Mark Albright is is a winger, isn't he? He's a traditional winger down yeah. the flanks. Yeah. Down the flanks, cross the ball in. I don't think in the system Gareth Southgate wants to play, which is that the Chelsea formation from last year, that 3 4 3 with wing backs, I don't know where Mark O'Brien fits into that team. Because if you're thinking it's three centre backs, two wing backs, two central midfielders, two, two number 10s in effect, yeah. and a centre forward, there's no real place for a winger in that sense. Now, the likes of Ashley Young have been brought in because you could play him as a wing-back. Yeah. Because he was a winger, now he's playing as, as a left-back for Man United. He could fill a wing-back role if you really need him to. Yeah. Raheem Sterling was a winger, but now has been transformed into that 
number 10 to play behind and, Still, can, and can also play centre forward yeah can do both yeah. he's not a winger in your traditional sense of Ryan Giggs or David Beckham or anyone you care to name of the past yeah I think that's the only reason is there's no place for him in the team but I would say I would say Matt as well if you have experience as a manager and you look at what he's done that surely you can adapt certain things maybe it's the same old, old adage for all England managers pick the best players from the best teams rather than building a team if I, if I can just give an example if you look at the current manager of Brazil the, the current manager of Brazil has gone everywhere in the world I mean I know Brazilian players are spread all over the world but to give an example Brazilian players playing in the Netherlands, playing in uh, Italy, playing in France, playing in Spain, none of them have been ruled out. None of them. It's basically saying, if you're good enough to play for me and you have certain skills that I require, you can come into my squad. And I don't understand how an England manager can't look at the same ethos of picking players, thinking, oh, well, the qualities of a winger, the qualities of a centre-half, these types of things. They have an awful lot of time to prepare their squads. They have an awful lot of time to think. And it's not um, just a case of qualifying for tournaments. You also have to make an impression in tournaments, like Wales did in, in Euro 2016. Yeah. They made a tremendous impression by working together as a team and harnessing together. And I just think um, I just think when England manages job at the minute, Southgate knows that he's safe and that everything's going to be OK. If he was up against it with a with more competitors to take his place or, or, or someone up and coming that can do a job uh, better, then he might be forced to think a bit more. But I just think at the minute it's just a bit tepid in that respect. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree with you. Like I, said, I think Mark Albright should be in contention. I'm just sort of playing devil's advocate and trying to come up with a way as to why Mark Albright isn't, isn't in there. And, yeah, that's just one of the reasons. And... Um, for what it's worth, yep. like in the past few years, from what we've previously seen uh, with previous England managers, I go back to Capello, I go back to Sven Joran Eriksson, I go back to Hoddle, Keegan, whoever it may have been, all down the years, anywhere from like the late 90s to the early noughties, you had that quote unquote golden generation that would always make the squad, always be put into the team, and always would try to make it work, but wouldn't. There would never be like other players looked to be integrated. It was almost like a clique yeah. uh, for the England setup at the moment. Whereas Southgate, he will go to, credit to him, he'll pick Harry Maguire based on form, not on club. He'll bring in Lewis Cook from Bournemouth. He, Alfred Mawson from Swansea. Yeah, yeah. yeah, you'll give Southgate credit. He's expanded it slightly. Slightly, yeah. yeah. Maybe not broad enough for me that he won't bring in John Joe Shelby. I'm biased, but I, as a Newcastle fan, I regularly watch Jamal Lascelles in the centre of defence. I think he's been absolutely fantastic. I think it'd be worth contention considering there's there's a slight change in the centre-half um, call-ups of England of late when down the years you had the likes of Gary Cahill, Phil Jones, Chris Smalling who might... Phil Jagielka. Phil Jagielka, who again is moving on. So you're looking at a changing of the guard at this point. So... This World Cup coming up for England now isn't about winning it. I think a few years ago they said they were aiming more for 2022, weren't they? As yeah. like a, um, <clears throat> like to aim for success. Yeah. So you want to start integrating that now. So I, you know, personally, I would like to have seen the cells in there, but the fact it hasn't, it's a shame. But but I can see the because yeah. like if because if we're going off my theory that he's going to play the three, four, three, yeah. however you wish to do it, I think centre backs particularly. Harry Maguire and John Stones, it's them two plus one other. And another. Because I think Harry I think Harry Maguire is the best centre back England have at the moment. I, th- I think he's the perfect centre half. He's yeah, no, he's, he, he's good. physical, he could win a tackle, he's, and he's pretty quick. He's pretty quick. And he's got this modern he's the modern centre half in which he can play the ball. He's comfortable with the ball at his feet. The one thing I don't see with England centre halves at the moment is I don't see any of them marshalling the defence. Yeah, I don't they, see anyone controlling it like Lascelles does. That's the thing, there's not a leader in there. That's what I mean. And that's something that's, and I look at the squad now, I can't see a leader in there because Joe Hart aside, because goalkeepers get put in their own thing in terms of caps. Yeah. The most caps from this England squad is 36. And that's tied with Jordan Henderson and Danny Welbeck. I just don't see it. So Southgate is trying to move it on. He is trying to change it round and, like, possibly prepare for the next World Cup like that. What he hasn't done, what he still hasn't done, is he still doesn't have a captain. 
Yeah. That's another thing. But that, for me, that, that's why I say, you know, the youngest captain in the Premier League at the moment is Jamal LaSalle's. And, okay, then you know, they're not in the top six. They're not pushing for Europe or the Great Cup run. But when you... The thing about... Okay, I'm biased because I watch Newcastle a lot. But when I watch that side, is they're very defensively... Well, defensive-minded. It's very much a case of come break us down. That's your objective. And if you can't, we'll hit you on the counter and either, you know, take a draw or steal a win, something like that. That's what their foundation is. And I watch that regularly with the sales. And I think that is perfect for what England need right now. So they need that cool, calm head at the back to control them and then push forward from there and just let the final third quality to shine through. Yeah. And one other point is, uh, on, sub- on the subject of caps, is the most is 36 for the outfield players because this leads into the next thing. The most goals in the in the squad, Danny Welbeck has 15, no one else has double digits. Because everyone's talking about Harry Kane at Tottenham being a one-man team. Where are the goals going to come from for England if Harry Kane isn't 100% fit after this ankle thing? Or, got, or say he gets injured and is out of the tournament anyway? Where are the goals going to come from? You're gonna. It depends what they do with that front three. If they go with like, I know they usually play wing backs, but if they like spread out the two attacking midfielders as possibly wingers, mm. maybe have Rashford far out cutting inside, and then have Vardy as the pinpoint, or playing it over the top with like balls for him to chase yeah. down, like we did against West Brom. Yeah, if it was, was yeah, it? like that. So that would probably be the next port of call, but. That shouldn't be an issue. You know, this is a bit of an exception because of this injury that Harry Kane sustained. He would be in the squad and they would be playing it uh, towards him. It would be uh, Kane up top with someone like Ali and Alana in behind. Or, or Ali it'll be, and Sterling. It'll be, Ster- it'll be Sterling. Because if you're going on form, Sterling is probably yeah. the first name on the team sheet. Yeah. If we're going in terms of form. Right, and their opponents, uh, this leads us brilliantly, their opponents in the first game is the Netherlands. And... Ronald Koeman's very first, uh, very first squad. You know, obviously Gareth Southgate is looking for, is looking forward to the World Cup, whereas Ronald Koeman, this is going to be his first inclination of what's going to be happening in the UEFA Nations League, come whenever that is October Sorry. time. Okay, October time. James, what has there been any sort of main surprises, or has it been what everyone thinks is going to happen with the Dutch squad? No, there have been surprises. Uh, Ronald Koeman named five debutants in his first squad. Four outfield players and a goalkeeper. He named uh, the defender Hans Harderball, who has been playing in uh, Serie A for Atalanta for a year and a half and making good impressions. So he's in the squad. Also, he's um, with uh, attackers, he's named two. Justin Kleivert, the um, attacker of Ajax, who's having a tremendous season who's taking responsibility for his club to win games at such a young age and uh, full of uh, full of e- eagerness to, to do well. About Weghorst, who has really come the long way around, currently the attacker of Arzad Alakmar. He was not so long ago playing for Hiraklas Almelo, where he was a bit of a bulldozer of, a, of an attacker, where he could... Um, he would uh, bully defenders, but he's, he's fine-tuned his game since... Uh, Arriving uh, at Arsene Alakmar and scoring many goals. And also Chris Thiel, who's a young um, central, central midfielder who's been having a tremendous season uh, with, um, with fantastic periods of play uh, and assists and goals, uh, belying his very, very young, young age. And uh, I would expect all four of them to, uh, to play a part in both upcoming friendlies. First, next Friday uh, against uh, England in Amsterdam. And then the following Tuesday, away to Portugal. And the game's going to be played in Geneva in Switzerland. Yeah. Now, you mentioned two things. There. You mentioned uh, uh, Till, You mentioned his goals and the fact that he's quite young. And I'm looking at the Dutch squad right in front of me now. And that seems to be the, the trend across the Dutch squad. I'm looking now. The most goal, going back to more or less what we said with England, the most goals in this lineup is Genie Wijnaldum with eight. And the oldest player is Ryan Babel. Fair play to him for still going at 31. So the oldest player is 31, and the most goals is eight. Is there sort of a similar question to where would England be without Harry Kane? Is there a similar question of where are the goals going to come from? Seeing as the likes of Iron Robin, Van Persie, uh, Huntelaar, I'm looking on here, Wesley Schneider, all those guys have retired. Is there what? Who's the uh, pinnacle or the talisman, if you want, for the Dutch squad going forward? I think 
the confidence of Memphis Depay at the moment will uh, will bear fruit. I mean, he scored the winner against um, against Marseille yesterday, and uh, Baz Dost is scoring many many goals for Sporting Lisbon, and even Quincy Promes in Spartak Moscow is scoring many many goals. But it's also David Pripper who plays for Brighton. He's a very very good player and can um, can provide many many assists. And um, there's there's good quality in that squad. Uh, Tony Filahena is uh, very important for final this season with goals and assists as well. So it's it's a really good mix. And this is um, this type of squad is what this, the Dutch national team have been quite, uh, crying out for for quite some time. I mean, we never got this kind of variety when Danny Blind was in charge. We never really got the uh, this kind of variety when. The Calvacar had his interim period towards the end of the qualifiers, so uh, so this is a good start. But you've also got to remember that this is just the beginning, and I think we'll see these different types of squad as, squads as time goes on, especially with the games in the summer as well. And um, this is a big project for Kuman, which he's determined to see out. Uh, in his press conference this afternoon, he, he stated that he spoke to Schneider and Robin. And he initially thought that Ian Robin would be open to reversing his decision of um, of entering international retirement, upon which he found out quite quickly from Ian Robin that that's not going to be the case. And they also want to um, to lead a tribute to Wesley Schneider for him to have one final international game to say thank you to the Dutch public for all the support for the years. But Koeman deemed this particular squad in his first uh, competitive uh, game, if you like, in terms of... Um, in terms of friendly, in terms of picking a squad, he wanted the timing to be right, and he didn't deem his first squad to be the right time for Schneider to uh, to have his farewell game. Okay, um, is there a common set? Like, no, like we say with Gareth Southgate, I'm, I assume that he's going to go with a three-four-three, but there's no, there doesn't seem to be any sort of uh, confirmed lineup or confirmed formation or anything like that. Do, do the Dutch people know what uh, Ronald Koeman's plan is going forward in regards to things like formations? And I assume they're going to be looking for a new captain as well with Schneider gone. Yeah, um, in ter- to start with formation, Koeman has dropped a big hint that it will be 4 3 3. But he wants the team to learn to play in different formations in terms of adjusting to different systems in different types of games. As is the in Dutch term- way. <laughs> yeah, in terms of in terms of a captain, he uh, he was hard pushed tonight by the Dutch or, or this afternoon, sorry, by the Dutch media as to who it might be. And uh, Koeman said something very interesting. He said that he doesn't really, he can't really appreciate it when strikers and um, goalkeepers are captains. He prefers. Um, he prefers the captain to be in an outfield position where he could be an he could be an example to his uh, his teammates. So it's looking likely that it's going to be a defender, but he would not be drawn in any names. But um, the Dutch media shortly afterwards have stumbled across the idea that it may well be Virgil Van Dijk who captains the Netherlands against England, although that's yet to be confirmed. That seems fair. I mean, if you look. Virgil van Dijk seems like the kind of guy. Admit, admit he threw his toys out the pram in his in the way he wanted to get to Liverpool. But if you're looking for a leader and you're looking for an example, Virgil van Dijk is one of his first name that stood out to me. Yeah, van Dijk. And I'll get, I'm and the only thing other than that is I'm looking at the the Italian way that they used to do it was basically it was a ceremonial role and whoever had the most caps was captain. And following on from that, it would be either Wijnaldum or it'd be if you prefer a defender, it'd be Stefan de Vrij. Which yeah. again, both both options. Reasonable, but same sort of same sort of thing is no one knows what the captain is for both for both England and Holland. It, it, it that's a, that's a question. As an is it important to be a captain at an international level? Is it something that needs to be tied down? Seeing as you're only really together for two weeks every couple of months, rather than week in week out. James, I'll start with you. Well, um, if I can just elaborate on one final point, you mentioned you mentioned Stefan de Frey, and he would be my choice for the captaincy on uh, on Friday. I would give it to him if I was uh, Ronald Koeman. Uh, I agree with you on the way Van Dijk uh, threw his toys out of the pram as regards to his transfer, and that doesn't set a great example to your fellow players. And Stefan de, uh, de Frey is so important for Lazio, and when he was at Feyenoord, when he was here in the Netherlands, he was a you know, fantastic attitude, always working very hard. So, safe and the flow would be my choice. Uh, to, uh, to answer your question, I think it is important important going into a tournament. I think if you look, if you look back to the recent tournament wins with um, 
Euro 2016 with uh, with Ronaldo of Portugal and uh, the World Cup in 2014 with Philip Lahm and um, Euro, 2000, Euro 2012 with Casillas, I believe. And um, and um, yeah, this is. Um, I think it's when you when you're going into a tournament, it's quite important for the team ethic and the team ethos in terms of working working to a goal to to achieve something together as a group. I think. Uh, I think it's a very important ingredient. Yeah, Marcus, how important how important are captains at international at level? International level. Yeah, I think it's something that as James rightly said there. It's, it's something that particularly younger players making their debut will aspire to look up to. That's not to say that someone couldn't come in and captain the side already. It's depending if they've had experience previously. It's all to do with like having that right mentality and that right personality too. With the, with regards to Portugal. Cristiano Ronaldo has worked his way to that experience level, and the reason that you know other players looked up to him is because of not just his ability but his success off the back of it. So that is a leader in itself. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's too easy to say that they're only together for a couple of weeks and then going away again because it, it means well for fans at least it means so much more than that because it's representing a country. It's it's like you said earlier, it's the greatest. Um, arguably the greatest sporting tournament uh, in the world. Um, so you'd hope that you'd have a captain that would have like a sense of uh, not just pride, but just like that would recognise that. Uh, in terms of like an actual match uh, against another team, then yeah, no, I'd, I'd say that's a great importance to having like the appropriate captain because I look no further than that England team and I just I don't see a recognised leader in that and I think that is half their downfall. I think because there's not enough communication between them, there isn't enough of um, it, there isn't like that John Terry figure to light a fire up under you know some people's asses like to, yeah. you really sort of give them a good kick and keep them in line and just sort of you know yeah, drill them as appropriate. Yeah, there's a sense, but you can't imagine you can't picture Harry Kane like telling um, who would be Harry Maguire to you know. Pull his socks up and keep tracking your man. No, but I you, can imagine. You can't see it happening. But I can imagine Harry Maguire telling Harry Kane to get on the end of more balls and, you know, get his arse in gear. It's all to do with the appropriate personality, and I see that in Harry Maguire. I could see Harry Maguire being a future captain. So do I. I really like him. Yeah. I really do. And that's not to do with him physically. I just see his presence both well, when he was at Hull and now that he's at Leicester. He just he has that he has that presence about him. Yeah. So, yeah, I think it has to be the right... It's not so much about um, out-and-out footballing ability as it is the right personality. Yeah, and you mentioned uh, personality. I mean, the the best example is... Cristiano Ronaldo. If you want an example for that year, for that Euro 2016 final, he had to be dragged off the pitch. Yeah, he was not going to give up easily. No. and even then, he was injured. He could have sat on. He could have sat on the substitute bench, but no, he was de, de facto manager. He was on the touchline. Yeah, fantastic. Compare that to Lionel Messi, who missed a penalty in the Copa America, then retired. So compare it to. Don't forget the final where he took a free kick from 40 yards out and went for goal yeah. instead of sending it into the box against Self- the Germans. Yeah. Exactly, the selfishness. But anyway, um, I think that wraps about uh, Unless, James, do you have any further points to talk about uh, captaincies? Uh, no, I think, that's, I think we've backed that up quite well. Good. Right, now, official preview time with the official preview of the uh, Football Association. Not actually official. Um... <laughs> <laughs> to do our preview, how do you see this game? I, I couldn't really care less. I'm more conf- uh, care about the China Cup for Wales. All right, relax. Okay, sorry, the China Cup. That's these are inside voices. So I'm just, I'm just saying that there are two British teams with a chance of silverware this year, and one of them's already in the semi-finals. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just saying, this is a fact. Anyway, <laughs> anyway, moving on. Marcus, your thoughts and preview for the game. Until until I'm inspired to think any different again, I'm not that asked about friendlies. I'm not, especially when it's against teams that you know, quite frankly, weren't good enough to make the finals anyway. It's just I don't know what England have to benefit from it, and it comes back to years and years of what was admitted on BT Sport a few months ago between the likes of Lampard, Rio Ferdinand, and Steven Gerrard that all these cliques were in the England dressing room and they put their club success over international success. And uh, you know, off, straight off the back of that, you know, that's not going to inspire anyone in the country to think, well, 
if they're prioritising that, then why you know, should we? Why should we? Yeah, other international sides will take full advantage of that. You look at the Spanish side that ranged from 2008 to 2012, all coming from passing it out year in, year out for either Real Madrid or Barcelona. You had the odd few that would come from other places of yeah. Europe, but that was the main... That was the, the core of it. The main core of it. But they would put that to one side because they were practically raised as a generation to prioritise that, prioritise a country over their club. Yeah. And I, I don't know if it's like a British mentality um, to not have pride in your country. Yeah. Uh, it's a slightly different yeah. subject. I We're could, going off. I, I can hear James jumping at the bit to get in there. Yeah, no, yeah, James, by all means. No, I agree. Uh, I agree with what Marcus, uh, Marcus just said, but surely it's the responsibility of the manager to knock that out of them. I mean, if you look at Spain and the path they were set on, it was Luis Aragonés that set them on that path to change their football, to work together, to embrace one another. Even picking, I think, uh, Juan Captavillo was playing for Villarreal at the time. And this wasn't the most well-known left-back in the world, but he had absolutely fantastic um, Euros and a fantastic World Cup in particular. And uh, he went on to become a World Cup winner. Mm. And surely it's the... Um, it's the responsibility of the manager to to oversee that and to not tolerate that. I mean, naturally, you'll have quick clicks in every squad, but I think um, I think the choices that England made, manage, manage managerial wise, didn't really help such a squad. I mean, naturally, the squad have to take responsibility for their own actions, and I completely agree. You know, when I heard those quotes from uh, Ferdinand, it was very dis- distasteful, but at least he was honest. And um, yeah, but surely it's the responsibility of the manager to to knock that out of them and to not tolerate such an attitude. The seems that you're not a fan of Gareth Southgate, are you? I can tell this coming this coming across. No, well, I'm just a, I'm just a bit. I mean, I'm not that old, but I'm just a bit old school. Where you know, a manager. I mean, uh, maybe being a fan, you know, I'd give my right arm to be manager of England or manager of Arsenal or or, or a foreign club. Obviously, it's never going to happen. But just to give you an example. And when those pe- when the people in those positions don't take it as seriously as the fans may well take it, even in terms of, of adapting uh, tactics and, and things like that. I mean, I'm fortunate enough to interview players and managers here in the Netherlands. And when I hear uh, a manager, Faith of Avenlo, for example, who's in the running for manager of the year and uh, is likely to... Uh, to go on to a bigger club here in the Netherlands in the summer, when he tells me, when I interviewed him last August, Molly Stein, that when he first arrived at Venmo, there were characters in his squad that wasn't really willing to fight, wasn't really, didn't really show the right characteristics that he needed, that he wanted to get the club uh, on an upward spiral. So he managed to get them out of his squad and attract players with a better personality that were willing to work hard. And they ended up winning the first division, and now they are currently in the Eredivisie. They are currently in twelfth position, in no danger of relegation whatsoever. With um, with six le- six games left. Good. Good for Is there the same level of apathy for international football, particularly after the last, particularly after the last two qualifying campaigns where the Dutch have been quite frankly awful, abysmal, abysmal? Yeah. Has, has there is there the same apathy in the Netherlands for international football, or is there now maybe with Ronald Koeman coming up, is there now a resurgence in in interest? There is a resurgence in interest due to the manager they've chosen, due to a new room being swept through the Dutch FA and they see this as an opportunity to to start again. It's going to take a long time but I'm quietly confident that Koeman will um, piece by piece create a team that will go on to be competitive again. Good. Um, and uh, well, Marcus gave his preview in that he can't be asked, therefore won't be watching. Um, James, will will you be asked, and will you be watching the game? And if so, what are your thoughts on what's going to happen? I will. I will be watching the game because it's in. Uh, it will be played in the city that I call home. Oh, you're not going. You're not going by any chance, are you? Um, no, no. Due to a prior engagement, I won't be attending the match live, but I will try my best to watch it on the. To watch it on TV at the very least, but uh, from my point of view, it's always a special game because it's the country of my birth against the country that I've called home for nine on a decade, and um, so it's uh, to, both countries mean a lot to me, and I hope it's uh, I hope it's a good game. My prediction is that uh, again, my uh, my thing for home advantage, I can see the Netherlands winning two one. Okay, and um, okay, that's well. I'm, I'm just wondering if that's sort of if 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 the Dutch win. 
Is that going to put seeds of doubt in Gareth Southgate? Or? I, I just really hope the Dutch go all out like they did back in the day. Proper <laughs> Dutch football. Yeah. I don't want to see 4 3 3. I want to see 2 3 5. Yeah. But, Indeed. yeah. Um, uh, in terms of England, well, this is uh, changing the guard for, for the Dutch. Practically a new squad. I would like to see Kuma be brave and uh, go ahead and start Justin Cliver as well. Up top, personally, you know, just to, you know, uh, show yeah. that no one's, you know, everyone's got equal opportunity regardless of experience. Um, I'd, but I'd like to see um, England do the same with Marcus Rashford because I think he was underutilised at the Euros and for what it's worth, I think, you know, if you're looking to look towards, further towards 2022, you want to sort of bed them in earlier. Yeah. Um, so does that uh, does that go for the likes of Alfie Mawson, James Tarkowski, yep, and all the other yep. and all the other uh, debutants as well? Absolutely. Well, my biggest gripe with the uh, England team, I I get as far as the goalkeeper and just go. I'm just because as soon as I see someone like Joe Hart make the sides, despite however abysmal he is playing um, at West Ham and the fact that he's still making the squad, that's where I lose faith in Gareth Southgate. Is where the same old players will get the same. Um, same game time, regardless of who's who should be earning it and who is, you know, deserved of a chance. Uh, you know, everyone will say Nick Pope, uh, given his form at Burnley, he's been absolutely, he's come out of nowhere and he's been absolutely fantastic. If he's, you know, given his de- debut rightfully so, that's something that should be integrated going forward. Okay. Or, or, I mean, Jack Butler has been slightly off form, but yes, yeah, so you'd hope that you just want. Well, regardless if it's Holland, England, whatever it is, you want a team that's picked, uh, not even so much on ability, but just on form and who who wants it the most, because that's ultimately what will bring you more success. Yeah, that's fair enough. Um, so we, that leaves us to do one uh, last thing, our last chore for the evening before we uh, wrap things up and we focus on the Eredivisie and everything else Dutch football by passing it to the Dutchie on the left-hand side. And we ask James, other than the national team, What's been happening in the Netherlands this week? Uh, the Netherlands, uh, what's been happening this week is that the seven-point gap between PSV and Ajax remains the same after PSV Eindhoven won 3-0 at home to 10 men David Venlo and Ajax won 5-2 away to the Kart Sparta Rotterdam. The result of the weekend goes to Udaudi USA winning away in Breda against NAC. That lifts them off the foot of the table where they are replaced by FC Twente, who are now rock bottom with six matches remaining. Here in the Netherlands, the team that finishes rock bottom is directly relegated to the first division, and the team that finishes 17th and 16th play in the promotion and relegation playoffs, where they play teams from the first division. So uh, the future looking quite bleak for FC Twente, considering it was only eight years ago that they won their Eredivisie. Okay, that's that's fair enough. Um, right, which now leaves me uh, only to do the uh, terms and conditions because there are terms and conditions to listening to this podcast. You know, you enter into a legal contract, so hopefully you're obligated and obliged to them, and we won't have to send the bay leaves around. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast through iTunes or through the Acast app. Listen out for the Man on the Post Extra Time uh, every weekend with Chris, Ryan, Jesse, and Justin. And of course, you can find us on Twitter at Man on the Post, um, and there are other people on Twitter as well. James, you're on Twitter, I believe, so what is your handle? My handle is at James Rowe NL. Uh, Marcus, you're on Twitter as well, uh, and it I is. I am Marcus Shearer one And I am Matthew Baldwin, and it is at MattRee63, M-A-T-T-R-H-Y-S, and then the number 63. Um, as is, well, how was well, 63? Yeah. <laughs> Unless you write it out. Anyway, so that just about wraps it up for this uh, week's edition of the Man on the Post uh, podcast. And there's only one thing left for us to do, and that's say goodbye. So it is goodbye from Marcus. Cheerio. Once again, coming off the substitute bench. Hopefully, this won't happen too much in the future, but it's good to know that we have you well, when we need you. I always find the sequel's not as good as the original. Indeed. But, you know, I always give it my best shot. Indeed. It's time to say goodbye from across the North Sea to uh, James. Yes, goodbye everybody. And it's goodbye from me, goodbye, and always remember to have your man on the post.